This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. I strive to make this podcast a safe and inclusive place for my listeners. If I have missed any content warnings, please let me know. Content warnings for this episode include strong language, mature themes, violent and disturbing imagery, and abusive cultural values, including financial coercion, forced breeding, and emotional manipulation by authority figures. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 272. Greetings, Metamorphs! Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I am Chris Lester, your guide to the fantastical world of Metamorph City. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorphcity.com. Each week, I share a piece of my fiction with you, available in audio for the first time anywhere. I'll also share my triumphs and struggles as a writing professional. More on that later in the show. For now, let's get to this week's story. Today, I'm bringing you Chapter 13 of my Metamore City novel, Making the Cut. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 259 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. In last week's episode, the disaster at the Skyport was over. Daniel was being questioned by detectives from the Metamore City Police Department, who believed that he was the Skyport employee he has been impersonating throughout the mission. Daniel acted his way through the interview until he was rescued by Ava Salindi, who gave him a ride away from the Skyport. Daniel was still deeply troubled by his participation in the mission, especially since the men Victor murdered were two fellow size. Ava was shocked to learn that Victor had kept Daniel in the dark about this. She thought that Daniel wanted out of the collective, and had been willing to work against them to be free of their influence. Daniel took advantage of her guilt to press her to reveal whom they had been working for. William Westerson, a captain in the Vampire Syndicate. Westerson answers directly to Malcolm Ardvalos, the Vampire Prince and the third richest person in the Empire. Daniel has unwittingly been working for one of the Collective's most dangerous enemies. Meanwhile, Victor tied off the last of his loose ends. It wasn't enough that he had hidden his own identity during the fight at the Skyport. The Collective would never stop looking for the rogue Teak who had killed Del and Trace. Acting as the Hive's enforcer, Victor tracked down and killed a solitary Teak named Philippe Devereaux, then planted evidence at his apartment that he had recently taken payment from the Vampire Syndicate, the very money that Westerson had paid Victor for the job. Victor showed off the evidence to one of the elders a powerful telepath and egoist named Miriam Bakhtivar. Miriam accepted Victor's story and awarded him Devereaux's blood money as a bounty for tracking down Del and Trace's killer. After the elder departed, Victor went into the bedroom at the back of the apartment, where William Westerson was waiting for him. In addition to covering Victor's tracks, the meeting with Bakhtivar had been a field test for the Syndicate's latest innovation— a cybernetic neural mesh, constructed by a nanotech virus, 
which renders the user immune to telepathy. Elder Bakhtivar is one of the most powerful telepaths in the Collective, but even she had been unable to sense that Victor was lying to her. This is the tool that Victor, Daniel, and the others helped the vampires to smuggle into the city. With it, they will be able to shield their mortal servants against psychic intrusion and mind control. It's a key security measure to protect them against the Psy Collective, and Victor is their first successful deployment. This psychic shielding, much more than the money, is what Victor needed in order to complete his extraction from the Hive. Now, all that's left is to get the girl, and he'll have a perfect happy ending. Making the Cut A Novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Chapter 13 May 29th Daniel stared at the phone in his hand, trying to summon the resolve to dial a number he'd memorized months ago. After a minute or two, he set the phone down, thinking better of it. He hadn't heard from Victor since the mission, other than a brief text message he'd received last night. All loose ends tied up. I'm getting out tomorrow. Farewell, and thanks for watching my back. V. Daniel had felt like he would be sick again just looking at it. He wanted to confront Victor about the way he'd used him. He wanted to demand an explanation for why Victor was working for the Vampire Syndicate, and why he hadn't shared that information with Daniel beforehand. Not that it would tell him anything he couldn't already guess at, but he wanted to hear it from Victor himself, to hear him admit how he'd played Daniel for a fool. I guess what I really want is just to punch him right in the face, he thought. Not that it would bring back the many he killed. Daniel fought down the gorge in his throat. No matter how hard he tried to avoid it, his thoughts kept circling back to those two dead spookies, lying on the deck of the cargo tender beside him. It didn't matter that he didn't know who they were. By healing Victor, he'd signed their death warrants. Their faces had been appearing to him in his dreams. Of course, according to Ava, they had been wearing disguise amulets, so that didn't really tell him very much. I wish I knew who they were, so I could at least try to do something to make amends. Next to him, the phone's handset began to ring. He looked at the ID, which read Summers. His pulse quickened. It was someone from Brian's cell. He pushed the talk button and raised the phone to his ear. Rebecca? There was a moment of silence. Then, Daniel, this is Fiona. Daniel felt a twinge of disappointment, then pushed it aside. Hey, Fee, I haven't talked to you in forever. What's up? The egoist hesitated before speaking. Unfortunately, I come to you as the bearer of bad news, she said her voice tight and controlled. Two of our former teammates have been killed. Daniel felt claws sinking into his gut. Oh, Eli, no, he thought. Please, no. Who was it? Del Matthews and Trey Sumbara. He felt sick. He wanted to pound his head against something, 
He wanted to scream at himself in the mirror and curse himself for a blind fool. Gods, of course. A wolf man and a tall, muscular man. Trace even spoke to me and I didn't recognize him. Fiona was still speaking. I fear I cannot divulge specifics over an unsecured line. If you come to visit the nest, we will tell you more. Daniel hesitated. Visiting Rebecca's breeding cell was always painful for him, and he avoided it when he could. How's everyone holding together? he asked, carefully. Not well, Fiona admitted. Daniel could hear the weariness in her voice. All of us have been deeply shaken by it. I've done my best to give strength to the others, but it is difficult. She paused. Daniel, the funeral is tomorrow. Brian and Sasha and I believe that Rebecca would benefit from your support, if you are willing. Of course, Daniel said immediately. I'll be there as soon as I can. Thank you, Fiona said. I will let her know to expect you shortly. Wait, Daniel protested. Don't I get to talk to her on the phone first? I do not think that would be wise, Fiona said. You know how she feels about speaking without telepathic contact. Daniel nodded to himself and sighed. Yeah, you're probably right. Give me half an hour. Understood. Fiona rang off without any further pleasantries. Daniel looked at the phone, then set it down and buried his head in his hands. It was worse than he'd thought. Not only had Victor killed two fellow teeps, but he'd killed two of Daniel's childhood friends. He hadn't seen them lately, sure, but that didn't mean that they meant any less to him. Memories drifted back to him unbidden, a hundred incidents where they'd gotten each other into trouble, or helped each other get back out again. He thought about Trace's cheerful egomania and Dell's happy-go-lucky attitude. He remembered when Dell left active participation in the collective to marry another wolf morph. Josephine was a smart, confident, and independent woman who had just enough telepathy to be compatible with Dell. She had refused to join the Hive for religious reasons, and for her sake, he had been willing to leave it. Daniel tried to imagine what she was going through right now, how she must have reacted when she heard the news that her husband was dead. He started weeping almost before he realized what was happening. He tried to choke back the sobs that heaved in his chest, but the images of his friends kept appearing before his mind's eye like accusing ghosts. Eli, forgive me. At last, he willed himself to pull it together. Rebecca needed him, and he was here wallowing in his apartment. Admittedly, the last thing he wanted to do right now was go into the middle of a room full of telepaths. If any of them saw in his mind what he had helped to do to Dallin Trace, he was as good as dead. But this was Rebecca, and for her he'd walk into the ninth hell if he had to. He went into the bathroom and washed and dried his face. His eyes were bloodshot from crying, but at least he wasn't covered with salt-encrusted tear tracks anymore. As he headed out the door to the apartment, his eyes drifted over to the phone sitting by his chair. I just had to ask who it was I killed, he thought sourly. His eyes drifted to the ceiling. Either I just wasted an actual wish, or someone up there has a sick sense of humor.
Daniel arrived at the breeding cell's nest to find it eerily quiet. He knocked twice, and Fiona ushered him inside. Her face was a calm mask of composure, but her emerald eyes had lost their fire. Now they just looked weary and careworn. Daniel looked around as he entered. "'Where's Brian and Sasha?' he asked, keeping his voice down. "'Still at work,' Fiona said. "'Network administration and psychiatric counseling rarely allow for regular forty-hour shifts. Fortunately, I can handle my investment duties as easily here as anywhere else, so I can stay home and help Rebecca.' Her forehead creased slightly. "'As much as I am able.' Daniel nodded, understanding her meaning all too well. Fiona was about as well suited to being a grief counselor as Rebecca was to being a stockbroker. Where is she? he asked. In her studio. Fiona nodded toward the hallway. The first door on the right. He knocked lightly before entering. Bex? She did not respond. The door was slightly ajar, so he pushed it open and took a step inside. The studio was much like the one he remembered from the apartment they had shared at university. It looked like a tornado had swept through an art museum. Blank canvases, buckets and jars of paint, brushes, used drop cloths, sketch pads and sculpting materials were scattered haphazardly around the room, pushed into corners, or tucked away behind paintings and drawings in various stages of completion. The scent of drying paint hung heavy in the air. The end of the room closest to the door held mostly finished illustrations, while the ones near the far end had been started only recently. The pictures ranged from corporate logos and conceptual drawings of offices, through cartoons and portraits, to stunning and outlandish landscapes that might well have been visions of other worlds, given the unpredictable nature of Rebecca's ESP. Nearly all of the finished works made use of the vivid and colorful style that Daniel thought of as Rebecca's trademark, optimism and irrepressible goodwill, infused into oil and ink and captured on canvas. The scene at the far end of the room was a different story. Rebecca stood in her paint-splattered coveralls before a large canvas, attacking it with sharp, violent strokes of her brush. She moved like a fencer, keeping her weight on the balls of her bare feet, as she darted in to strike and then withdrew again. Her swollen belly made her movements a little ungainly and awkward, but what they lacked in grace they made up for in ferocity. And the painting itself. It took a few seconds for Daniel to realize what he was looking at. At first he saw only a jumbled swirl of black and red, with accents of putrid green. As he came closer, though, he saw that the darkness of the canvas was filled with dozens of slightly different shades and hues, which joined together to form an image that might have been better left in nightmares. A dark warrior strode through a pile of broken and shattered bodies, his hands and arms covered in blood. The figure was abstract and distorted, giving it a surreal look, as if he were something not quite human. He wore no shirt, his hair was tangled and wild, and his eyes were huge and luminescent green, like the eyes of a predator seen at night. His mouth was open in a savage grin, bearing a mouthful of narrow, pointed teeth. 
He wore a necklace of bones, some of them clearly human. His hands were curled into huge, deformed-looking claws, which dripped blood onto the bodies of the fallen men beneath him. Among them were a wolf morph and a baldarambian, their bodies torn almost in half at the warrior's feet. In the background, dogging the man's heels and hovering around his head, a crowd of small red demons watched with drooling jaws and bright, hungry eyes. My God, Daniel whispered. It was incredible. It was hideous. It was perverse. It was genius. He struggled to tear his eyes away from the painting, as his admiration of Rebecca's skill warred with his utter revulsion at the subject matter. Rebecca herself seemed similarly transfixed, staring fixedly at the canvas as if in a fever dream. He forced himself to come closer, to turn his eyes away from the nightmare and onto the woman in front of it. Rebecca's eyes glowed yellow like a pair of torches. "'Oh, my God!' he said again. He got behind her, wrapped his arms around her, and turned her away from the canvas, covering her eyes with one hand. She struggled against him, whimpering incoherently, but he held her close in a gentle and completely unyielding grip. "'Snap out of it, Rebecca,' he urged, speaking directly into her ear. He touched her lightly with his thoughts, but he didn't allow himself to get too close. She was caught inside her own second sight, and letting himself be drawn down inside of that could well destroy his sanity. Rebecca had a lifetime of experience dealing with the visions, and even she couldn't always control herself when they came on her. A novice wouldn't stand a chance. "'Come back, Bex,' he said, holding out the mental image of an outstretched hand. "'Let go of it and come back to me.' "'D-Daniel?' she asked, her voice little more than a ragged whisper. "'It's me. Come on home, Becca.' She let out a long, shuddering breath and collapsed against him, his strong arms holding her up. He guided her over to the little stage she used for her modeling subjects and helped her sit down. She leaned her head against his chest and relaxed, her breathing gradually returning to normal. Daniel looked up to see Fiona watching from the far end of the room. He gave her a sharp look. "'You should have told me she was like this.' he said, his tone accusing. Fiona stepped closer, and he could tell from the look in her eyes that she didn't want to fight this time. If I had, she said quietly, would it have made the subways move any faster? Or would you simply have become more reckless and possibly gotten yourself hurt in coming here? Daniel grimaced. You know me way too well. She smirked at that, but only for a moment. She would not respond to me, she said, her eyes shifting to Rebecca. I feared the possible consequences for both her and the child if I should rouse her forcefully. Rebecca groaned, flexing her hand against Daniel's. She turned her head a little to look at Fiona. Sorry, Fee, she said, sounding both exhausted and embarrassed. I thought maybe I could asp an image of Del and Trace's murderer. I should have known better than to try to tap into something I was so angry about. She reached up and touched Daniel's cheek, softly. 
You did the right thing, calling D. He covered her hand with his own. I'm just glad you didn't get hurt. We've had too much tragedy as it is. Fiona came close enough to join hands with them, and together they entered a weak gestalt. It wasn't nearly as complete as when Sasha was there to forge the link, but after a few minutes they were able to open up to each other enough to find a little strength and solace in their shared bond. Daniel lost track of time as they commiserated about their fallen friends, and when they broke the link, he felt almost encouraged. Neither Fiona nor Rebecca had come anywhere near touching on the memories of his involvement with Victor, probably because the possibility hadn't entered their minds. His own guilt aside, he was glad that he was able to do something to help them cope. Over the next hour, as they sat in the living room nursing cups of tea, Fiona explained to Daniel what had happened with their disastrous mission. It was strange to hear about the same events from the other side, feigning ignorance as she described the ridiculously unlucky turn of events that had led to her being trapped in one of Callie's force fields during her escape. What do the elders plan to do about it? Daniel asked. We still don't know, Rebecca said, looking worried. Right now we're just dealing with the funerals, but Brian said the elders were really serious about getting that package. They haven't said anything to us since the mission, and Sasha thinks that's a bad sign. It is about to get worse, Fiona said. Dell left active participation in the collective to marry Josephine, so they did not have fully guaranteed life and health coverage. Her eyes narrowed to green slits. I found out today that their life insurance company is refusing to honor Dell's policy. What? Why? Fiona raised a hand, palm upward, as if offering a piece of evidence for consideration. Dell's body was identified at the scene, and several witnesses reported that he had died in the commission of a felony. That was enough to void the policy. She dropped her hand back into her lap and averted her eyes. Josephine is in trouble. Her religion insists on burial rather than cremation, so the funeral costs are considerable. To say nothing of the costs of daycare for an infant, if she should return to work. Isn't the hive going to do something to help her? Rebecca let out a harsh laugh. Daniel winced to hear such a bitter, ugly sound coming from her throat. Oh, sure, they'll help her, as long as she comes back to the collective and joins a breeding cell. Daniel stared. They must know she can't do that. She'd have to leave the Ecclesia, and that would kill her. Yeah, I know, Rebecca said. She looked as angry as Daniel had ever seen her. Joe and I never agreed on very much, but she's got to be free to do what she thinks is right. They're trying to use money to make her do something she doesn't want to do, and that's just wrong. I'll say it is, Daniel growled, feeling the same anger rising up inside himself. How the hell could they decide on something like this without us? The whole point of the hive is that it's supposed to include all of us. The elders, in their infinite wisdom, decided to exclude us from the deliberations, Fiona said, her voice dripping sarcasm, both as a punishment for our failure and because they believed we could not be impartial enough to be suitably pragmatic. Daniel scoffed at that. He remembered Nathan's words from a few weeks ago. 
The collective was no more impartial than the emotionally turbulent members it was made of. He knew the hive could be manipulative, but this was a new low. And what about me? I wasn't involved in your mission. Why didn't they ask me for my input? Or Nate or Kevin? Rebecca looked away, fidgeting in her seat. Fiona just raised an eyebrow. Do you really need us to answer that question for you? The mildness of her words took him off guard. He lowered his eyes and felt his cheeks begin to burn. No, he really didn't need to hear the answer. It wasn't anything he didn't already know. You know, Rebecca said into the silence, I do love the collective. I really do. I even believe that it can make the world a better place. But at times like these, when this is how we treat people... She looked up at them, and her eyes were dark and sad. It's sort of hard to remember why. And that's the end of Chapter 13. Come back next time, when Daniel and the Summer Cell say goodbye to their friends, and Miriam Bakhtivar discovers that she has a new problem. Samuel Johnson said, The only end of writing is to enable readers better to enjoy life, or better to endure it. We all had our share of enduring in 2020, so this year let's try for some enjoyment, eh? Here's your weekly writing report. This update covers the week of January 16th through January 22nd. I wrote 4,231 words this week, over the course of six hours, for an average writing speed of 705 words per hour. As of Friday night, I have gone 279 days without breaking my chain. Honor Bound continues to work its way gradually toward its conclusion. I didn't write as much this week as I did during the last two weeks, so I didn't get as far as I would have liked but I still managed over 3,300 words on the novel. The internal through-line of this story is resolved. Honor and Natasha have each chosen to stop hiding behind their masks and embrace their inner selves, and that means they are stronger now together than they could be apart. Now it's time to resolve the external through-line. Honor has stepped up and put herself at risk in order to stop the bad guys from completing their evil scheme. Fortunately, this time she has more help on her side, and with the new inner strength that comes from embracing her true self, all the pieces are in place for her to win the day. The story is now in chapter 43, and the manuscript is over 121,000 words. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester, the fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and our Discord server is Metamore City. I'm there pretty often, so come say hi! If you like this show, please consider leaving a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podchaser.com. It really helps people find the show. 
That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2021 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.